Well, if you will, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be on Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. And, and based on these verses today, we are going to, to talk about Christ as our perfect mediator. Oh, by the way, time, let me just, I meant to say this at the beginning, so go back a little bit, rewind in your minds. Uh, I see some children here, we're happy that there are, are kids with us, and if they make a little bit of noise, uh, that's okay. I, I meant to say that at the beginning, uh, but let me just tell you one thing not to do, which is what I did last week. Uh, I had my child with me during Sunday school, was enjoying Steve's Sunday school class. She was making a little bit of noise, so I decided to get one of those K-cups over there. Maybe she would play with that. Well, she actually ate the coffee out of it and then was wide awake for the service. Don't do that. But um, it's okay if children make a little bit of noise during the service. Okay, back to your great attention to Hebrews, and uh, we will look at God's Word together. Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We're going to look here at Christ the mediator. Now, when I say we're going to look at Christ the mediator, I wonder if, if your thought to that is, well, that sounds like a you know, theological thing to do. Uh, sounds like something a pastor would want to talk about, and I can realize why it would be important. Uh, but you might be thinking also that, you know, I've had a really hard week, and I would also love for to hear something that would sort of connect with me you know, in the day in and day out life, in the trenches. Maybe, maybe you want to connect there. And let me just say uh, first that when I prepare sermons, my assumption is that you want to know about the nature of God and the story of the Bible because you care about those things. So it's okay for me to preach about things that, that don't have that really like immediate connection to, oh, this is what I'm going to do differently on Tuesday morning now. Nevertheless, I also assume that you want to live in a way that would be pleasing to God, and and you care what God thinks of you, and therefore you do want to apply truth to your life so that you can be holy as God is holy. I assume you do want to apply, and and we want to be mindful of that as well. So by way of introduction, I want to just prove to you that when I say a mediator, and a mediator is, is one who stands between two parties. So Christ is our mediator who stands between us and God. I want to just prove to you that, that a mediator is actually critical for your life and is much more of an in-the-trenches, day-in, day-out kind of thing than you might first realize. So first, a mediator is another way of saying the place from which my help comes. In life is hard. I talked to a number of people this week for whom just making it through the end of the day was a significant accomplishment. And maybe you're there. And I think of the psalmist in the Old Testament who asked the question, from whence does my help come? And that's that's another way of saying, how am I going to get the strength to make it through the day? What's it going to be for you? Is it going to be because of a friend? Because of chocolate? Because of a TV or, or a movie you're going to watch at the end of the day where you can just sort of veg out and, and relax? Is it going to be because of some illicit pleasure? Where does your help come from? That's, that's another way of saying who is your mediator? Who will mediate strength to you? A mediator is also what we look to in order to rescue our lives from mundane insignificance. Uh, we want a mediator to... Mediate transcendence to us. 
I'm willing to, to bet that, that uh, probably at the Greenbelt uh, swim, at the Greenbelt pool, that they get some more swimmers that sign up, uh, wanting to be the next Katie Ledecky or uh, Michael Phelps, right? Or, or one of our kids uh, this week, when I came home from work, had put on her bathing suit and was jumping all around our living room, you know, doing the gymnastics floor routine, right? Why do we do that? We do that because we see these heroes and we want to share in their glory. The Olympic athletes mediate significance for all those who aspire to be like them. Or, or a mediator is about who will stand up for me when everyone else seems to be against me. Who will argue my case? Maybe one of your recurring daydreams is that there is a person out there, hopefully somebody of some importance, who will listen to your story and declare that you are the one who is in the right and you hope their word will matter. A mediator is important for your daily life. And, and let me prove this to you another way. Uh, put on your... your um, historian hat for a second, even if you don't like history, at least pretend to for a second here. Uh, did you know that throughout all of human history, people have been looking for mediators? So the Native Americans had their medicine men, or the religions of the ancient Near East had their priests and priestesses, or, or the Europeans had their kings who had the divine right to rule, to, to mediate God's authority to their people, is what they believed at least. And today we have our athletes and our artists, our politicians and our professors. You might not think of it in such stark theological terms, but you are looking for a mediator. And this is why uh, Hebrews is so important for us. Because it tells us that if you have the wrong mediator, it will not go well for you. You will not get the help that you need. You will not have any transcendence. And there is no one who will argue your case. Christ is the mediator, and we see why he matters in this passage. So with that in mind, let's look at uh, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, but we'll focus in on verse 3 and 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would use this passage in the life of our church. Cause us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Make us to know him. And through him find everything that we need in order to please you and love others. Lord, some of us come here today tired. Some of us come confused. Some of us come really not wanting to posture ourselves in submission to you. Oh, Lord, through Christ, change our hearts. Cause us to see him and believe in him and be changed by beholding him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Okay, so since we're only looking at two verses today, and by the way, if you're doing some quick math and realizing that we're not going to finish Hebrews until sometime in you know, the next decade, um, please know that I am going to speed up after we get past these verses. They lay a good foundation for us to go on. But anyway, we're looking at two verses, so we need to really think about the context and the background, lest we go off track. And uh, just remind you that last, the two weeks ago, rather, we looked at verses 1 and 2, and the point of these verses was that God had spoken climactically through his son. In all of history, God has spoken through the prophets. But now the the pinnacle and climax of all of God's revelation has been by his son. And by the way, that includes all that was spoken about the son through the apostles as well. Verses 1 and 2 seek to show the uniqueness of the son's revelation by showing what God the Father does for the Son. That's the point of verses 1 and 2. All that God does in establishing the Son's revelation. But then notice as we get to verse 3, which will be our verse for this today, with the next one as well, notice that the subject switches there. Look at verse 3. It says, He, and the He there is not God the Father, it's God the Son. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God. In verses 3 and 4, the author aims to impress upon us the nature and character of the Son by showing how the Son is superior to all, and in particular, superior to angels, so that we would listen to the Son and we would worship the Son. But when I say that he's superior to angels, I wonder if that sort of threw you for a loop a little bit. Like, like why do angels fit in here? And if you read all of uh, chapter 1, you'll see that, wait a minute, this speaks all, you know, all kinds of stuff about angels. Where did they come from? Why is that important to the author's argument at this point? Well, well here's where a little bit of background is helpful. Think about it, that, that people have always been interested in angels, aren't they? I mean, you, you probably talk to people who think more about their so-called guardian angel than they do about the nature of God. Um, they're, they're impressive beings, and they're real beings according to Scripture. And they bring revelation from God. They speak God's message to people. I mean, think of how they, they appear in the Bible. They always bring a message. It's no wonder that people would become fixated on them because they're, they're a kind of mediator. They mediate God's nature as, as glorious as they are. I mean, they always have to say, don't fear, which means that they're a pretty impressive sight. They mediate something of God's transcendence, and they bring God's message. So, of course, people would latch onto them as a kind of mediator. But the author of Hebrews wants to show that actually Christ is a better mediator, and therefore you should become fixated, fix your eyes, really, on him. Uh, but there's another reason as well, I think more to the point of this passage, and that is uh, the Bible makes it clear that in the giving of the law, um, the angels were actually part of it. That's something we don't really think about much. I don't think I've ever actually said that through any sermon I've ever done in my life. It's kind of an obscure point in Scripture, but nevertheless, it's true. Read uh, Exodus 30. Uh, 2, 33, I believe that's the passage, and it's in the New Testament as well. The angels were part of mediating the law to the people. So when, when Christ is said to be better than angels, the author here is also saying that the system by which we relate to God through Christ is better than the system by which we relate to God through the law. That, that's the point here. The law had a system of relating to God, which was perform these things and then you can have life. Christ, as we will see, is better. And we'll see why. So, so maybe you come here this morning fixated on angels and we'll convince you that, 
that you need to be fixated on Christ, but, but maybe perhaps there's some other mediator. And you need to see that when it talks about angels, you can really supply anything else there, and it will be the same. Christ is still better. Okay, so I think what we see in this passage then, with that sort of background out of the way, we see three reasons why Christ is better. Three, three things about Christ that make him better. Um, and, and there's sort of a historical progression for these things. I say sort of, though, because the first one really isn't history at all. It's actually eternity. Uh, it is who the Son is in eternity. He is God in eternity. That's the first thing. The second thing is who the Son is since the creation of the world. And we see that he is upholding the world, all things, through the word of his power. So since the creation of the world, he has been upholding the world. And the third thing we see is something that Christ does, the Son does within human history. Namely, he makes purification for sins. So that is the... Uh, that is the sort of historical progression of these attributes of Christ that make him superior to all. And I think if we can impress these upon our minds, we'll find that our hearts gravitate towards Christ. They want to be with Christ and worship him. Again, I think one of the goals here is that we would worship Christ because of this passage. And I also hope as we go through here to show how these impact our lives. So, so first, who Christ is, who the Son is, in eternity. Verse 3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. And this is who the Son just is. He didn't become the glory of God. It's not something he aspired to. No, he just is the glory of God for all of eternity. The Greek text makes it a little bit more clear. It says who being the radiance of the glory of God. The emphasis there is on the on the continuative, the, the durative character of the Son. He is, he's not going to change. It's just, this is what he is. He is the glory of God. And the author of Hebrews here is drawing a comparison between Christ and Moses. You see, uh, in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, Moses goes to meet with God, and he gets the Ten Commandments. Again, another reference to the giving of the law. And I don't know if you remember the story, but Moses comes down from the mountain, and what happened to his face? It shone. Uh, the, the text says that Moses spoke with God and it says, Behold, the skin of his face shone. Can you imagine what that would have looked like? And, and actually, from that point on, whenever Moses would go meet with God in the tent of meeting, when he would come out from that tent of meeting, having met with God, his face would shine. It probably had some practical value, right? When you're camping out in the desert and there's no flashlights. Moses there, and it'll help you out. But, but, of course, that's not the point at all. No, no. The point is that the time in which he had spent with God, he absorbed some of God's glory and therefore was able to mediate that glory to the people in a, in a dim, reflected way. But you see, the glory always faded. It never lasted. He had to go back and, and recharge, in a sense. I think of Moses like one of those glow-in-the-dark stickers, right, that our, our kids have, where, you know, they, they put them on their wall, and, and they turn the light on, and it absorbs light, and then you turn the light off, and they, and they glow, right? They don't have any, any source of light in themselves. They're dependent upon the other light to charge them up. Well, that, that's kind of like what Moses' radiance was like. But the sun is the exact representation of God's character. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That means that he 
possesses this glory. It's his own. He doesn't just absorb some of the glory and then let it sort of reflect off until he runs out. No, it's his. He has an internal source of it. He, he, is, he is God. He has that glory not just because he hangs around God and sort of soaks it up. No, he has that glory because it is his. There is nothing that is true of God that is not also true of the Son. That is why Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Son is the exact representation of the Father. And friends, what that means for us is that there is no false advertising with Christ. Right? Have you ever bought, a, bought something and then been disappointed because the picture on the package is not at all like what's inside? You know how that works? That doesn't happen with Christ. He comes to us bringing the message of the gospel that through him we can be reconciled to God. And, and the love that he has for us is the love of God. The mercy that he brings towards us is the mercy of God. The holiness of Jesus is the holiness of God. We can know God through Jesus. And when we know God through Jesus, we know who God truly is. Because he is God. He is the exact representation of God. There's something also that we can learn by focusing on that word radiance. And here we're going to go a little bit into theological waters here, but I'm sure you'll be fine. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Think about that word radiance. Radiance draws your attention to that which of a thing is felt, is is seen, is bearing down on you. So you might walk out from church uh, after the service today, and you might say, oh my, the sun is hot today. The S-U-N, right? But if you wanted to be more precise, you would probably say the radiance of the sun is hot today because the sun's a giant ball of fire. I mean, of course it's hot, right? That's that's nothing new. By saying radiance there, you're drawing attention not to the source and origin of the thing, but to how it comes to you. The point at which the sun's heat actually hits you, what you feel about it, your experience of it. Likewise, the sun, S-O-N, being the radiance of God, accents how how the Son manifests the glory of God to us. He makes that glory known. John tells us, no one has seen God at any time, but his only Son has made him known. He is the image of the invisible God. He is how we know God. He makes God known. And thus, it is fitting that Christ would be the mediator. He's the radiance of God, the effulgence of God. I hope you realize we've gotten into some some pretty deep Trinitarian theology here. Let me just summarize it for you. What we're saying is that when we talk about who the Son is in reference to God, the Godhead, we say that he is exactly the same. He is God, right? Everything that God is, the Son is. But when we talk about the Son in reference to the Father, and then also the Spirit, well, we have to say that there's a difference. The Son is not the Father, The Father is not the Son. And they have different ways of relating. So you say, wait a minute, Micah, you're saying that the Father is God, exactly the same as God, and the Son is God, exactly the same as God, but the Father and the Son are not the same. Can you explain that? And I'll say, no, (laughs) I can't explain that. But that's what we have to believe, given what Scripture reveals about the nature of God. And then we should worship him because he is far and above us. And I think, actually, this whole passage just oozes worship. Because the point is that Christ is superior, right? I mean, that's the point. 
And therefore, the goal of this passage is that we ascribe proper worth to him. And that's what worship is. Worship is ascribing worth. You know, I think so often we think that the importance of Christ lies in what he does. But, but the true importance of Christ and the reason why we can worship him lies, first of all, in who he is. I mean, let's think about this. Uh, let's say, I hope this doesn't happen to you, but, but your house is burning down and you're in it. But then a firefighter rushes in and pulls you out and saves your life. Well, I hope you'd be profoundly grateful, but you, you wouldn't worship that firefighter, would you? That would be idolatry. But Christ saves us from eternal suffering, eternal death. And we do worship him. Why do we worship him? Well, it's not simply because he saves us. It's because of who he is as God. And actually, the kind of salvation that he gives us is something that he can only do as God. And thus, we worship him for who he is and that he does what only he can do. His his nature as God is behind all that we appreciate about him and worship him for. So when we think about Christ as the radiance of God's glory, let's not use this simply as sort of a theological proof to you know, pull out of our, our pockets when we're talking to Jehovah Witnesses, right? And we want to we show that Jesus actually is God so we can win that theological argument. No, let's hold this before our minds at all times so that we might, in everything that we do, worship him. This is what Franton preached about last week. Fix, um, set our minds on the things above. That's what we must do. And and I told you that I would try to help make this practical. And let me say that I think one of the things that we need most in our lives is to worship God. That's why the the Westminster Catechism that we we talk about says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And yet we have this, this propensity to turn inward and preoccupy ourselves with how we are, how we feel. Are we happy enough? And, and, you know, those things are significant, but we, what we really need to do, first of all, is to turn outward and worship God for who he is. And Jesus has come to reveal God to us, to be God for us, and everything that he did in dying on the cross and taking upon our sin and giving us his righteousness is a means by which we would know who God is to worship him. So, friends, do you truly worship Christ? Not just be grateful for him. Not just be glad that there is such a thing as Christ and what he did for you. Do you worship him? Ascribe proper worth to him. That is the glory of God, the weightiness of God, the the transcendence of God, and worship him. Well, another aspect that makes Christ better than anything else, better than angels, is that Christ, as it says in verse 3, upholds the world, upholds all things by the word of his power. We're now no longer in the realm of eternity. We've entered into the realm of time. Since the the creation of the world, Christ has been upholding it by the word of his power. Keith talked about this uh, last month. By the way, I had lunch, uh, breakfast with him yesterday. He's doing well. He's just been traveling. He's looking forward to being back with us. so, So don't worry. He hasn't gone anywhere. But his great sermon on Colossians, he talked about how Christ, how uh, it says, in him all things consist. All things have their meaning and power and purpose in Christ. All things hold together because of Christ. And then we get the added information from the book of Hebrews that it really is held together by Christ, by his word, by his powerful word. 
And if we were to read through the Old Testament, we would see that God's word is powerful. It is God's word that created the world. It is God's word that imparts life. It is God's word that heals. It is God's word that destroys. God is, is, the word of God is so powerful that God is really identified with his word. Isaiah 55, the word that goes forth from my mouth, God says, will not return void, but will accomplish its intended purpose. And then from the New Testament, we realize that this powerful word is the Son of God himself. And that fits exactly what we saw already of him being the the radiance of God. The means by which God is known and felt and enjoyed and feared. Friends, do you realize that all that would have to happen for the world and everything we know in ourselves to just cease to exist is for Christ to stop sustaining it by his word? I mean, it wouldn't even need like an active action on Christ's part. He wouldn't need to do something. He would just need to stop doing something. Namely, stop sustaining the world by the word of his power. I mean, think about it. If I I hold this Bible out here, the only thing that keeps it from falling down is that I'm, I'm holding it up. And if I just stop holding it up, it will fall. That's how Christ is with the world, with all things. He is holding them all together. Of course, that's not hard for him. I mean, he's powerful. It's his powerful word. And of course, he will sustain all things because he's promised to. But just think about how powerful he is and how dependent upon him we are. Think about how the son's powerful word upholds every cell in your body, every molecule, every atom, every electron is held together by his word. The son, by his word, is upholding the laws of logic by which you think and communicate. The son, by his word, is upholding all of human history. Anything good that has ever been done has been done only because the Son of God has been upholding it by his word. What does it mean for us? Well, if you remember the book of Hebrews, the goal is that we would listen to the Son as he is speaking to us, right? That we would hear his word of the gospel and hold fast to it. Well, I think there's a connection between the fact that that it is his word of the gospel that we must hear, and it is his word that sustains all things. That holds all things together. Maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, I'm not sure this gospel thing is really for me. I didn't really grow up in a religious household. I I don't really know the Bible very well. I I just wandered in here. Well, Well, you need to know that the Son of God is upholding you by his word. And therefore, his word of the gospel is entirely, you are entirely within his reach. You can hear and understand the word of the gospel because it is his same word that upholds all the universe together. I'll tell you another way I applied this to myself this week. Uh, I spent a while thinking about all the blessings that are in my life, and there are so many of them. I thought about how God, the Son, holds all those blessings. They, they, They exist because of his powerful word. They're there because of his word. He is pleased to sustain them. And that brought me a profound sense of gratitude. I saw God as more actively involved in my life. And then I made another list in my head of all the things that concerned me. All the things I was tempted to worry about or be stressed about. And I thought to myself, God is sustaining those things by his word as well. And thus, they must fit within his perfect plan. I can trust in him and rest in him. 
We'll look to Christ as the perfect mediator because he upholds all things by his word. And finally, the last thing we see here about the Son is at the end of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Notice here, we're within the realm of history in a very specific point in history. Because we are told that Christ does something within history after which time there are enduring results. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, baggage or, or really could say content behind that phrase though. That he um, makes purification for sins. Uh, there's a lot that the author of Hebrews assumes that we know and can uh, use to make sense of that. So, so let me just take a bit of time to sort of explain that. The first question we should ask is, why is it even necessary that this son would make purification for sins? And the answer is, quite simply, because we are stained. You see, the Bible says that God created us to worship him. Remember, the, the chief end of man, glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we've not done that, have we? Look out at the world today. We're, we are not, as a collective people, worshiping and enjoying God. No, we, we worship enjoy, and enjoy created things. Things that we make with our own hands. And we, we put them up as God in God's place. We decide to do what we want rather than what God wants. And therefore, and this is very serious, but we deserve God's wrath. We sung songs about that today. That God is holy and perfect and blameless. And he just can't, because of his perfection, endure sin in his presence. He must, because of who he is, punish sin. And thus we are doomed. But yet God, in his infinite goodness, sent his son to be the perfect mediator. His son took upon himself true flesh without ceasing to be God in any way. He actually became also man, a true human. But unlike all other true humans, this true human, God, the son, was perfect. He did nothing wrong. He deserved no condemnation. He had no guilt. He had no stain. And yet, he was condemned. He did suffer for sin, but not his own. He suffered for the sins of all those who would put their trust in him. This is how he made purification for sins. He became guilty and stained in our place. He took the wrath of God for all those who would trust in him. And, and, And that's how he makes purification. By taking on our stain and Bearing the penalty that it deserves. And we also know from this passage that the purification that he makes is so completely perfect. Because after he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And the picture here is him as a priest, because the priests were the ones who made purification for sins. Him sitting down as a priest. And, and if you read the Old Testament, that would be shocking. Because in the temple where the, the priest would work, There's one thing that just wasn't there, and that was a chair. The priest would never, ever sit down. That's because they always had to make continual sacrifices to continually make purification for sins. But Christ, because of who he is as God and man, can make one sacrifice for all time that would cover all the sin of his people. And because that sacrifice is entirely perfect, then he sits down. It's all done. It is finished. And and I think we all know, if we're honest with ourselves, that we are defiled. Deep down, we are guilty. And there is something wrong with us. And that is why we are in a constant search for a mediator. 
But Christ is that perfect mediator. And friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, if you're trusting in the law by trying to do enough good works or or trusting in something else, let me urge you in the strongest way I can that Christ is the only one who can save you. He is the only mediator. So believe in him and know him and rest in him. And if you'd like to talk more about that, I'd love to talk with you after the service or or Pastor Steve or really any other church member. Uh, you, You know this gospel and you would be happy to talk with someone else about it. But I want us to see why the author of Hebrews thinks it's significant that Christ made purification for sins and sat down. Look here at verse 4. You'll notice that even though the the, uh, purification that Christ makes has a huge effect on us, nothing of that effect is what the author of Hebrews draws attention to afterwards. Notice what he chooses to dwell on. After making purification for for sins, sat down at the right hand of God, verse 4, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. See, what's going on here is that the author of Hebrews is drawing our attention not to the effect of the purification of sins upon us, but to the effect of Christ making purifications for sins upon him. And that effect is that he is now exalted far above even the angels. And now if we really think about that, it will strike us as a bit odd. Because what have we known about Christ? He is the son who through all of eternity has been the radiance of God, right? He's upholding the world by the word of his power. How does he then become superior to angels? You think that would just not make sense, right? It would be a little bit like if I proclaim to you that if if Michael Phelps does another Olympics and sweeps all gold, then, then he will become a better athlete than me. Yeah, yeah, you're laughing, right? (laughs) <laughs> because, because Michael Phelps has been a better athlete than me since he's looked at a pool. Christ is so, I mean, the Son is so superior to angels. How does he become superior to them? Well, well the Bible actually tells us that, that we're not talking about the Son simply as who he is as God. We're talking about the Son as who he is as the God-man as having become like us, having taken on a true human nature. And when he came down into our world and took on a true human nature, he was like us in every way but sin. And he, he was, the Bible actually says, made lower than the angels for a time. But when he completes the plan that God has sent him on, and then he's exalted back up at the right hand of God, then he becomes superior to the angels, not simply as he is God, but as he is God and man in the same person. And so, who is exalted at the right hand of God is now a true human, a divine and true human, who who sits there, inheriting a name that is above every name. Let me try to illustrate this for you again. I'll, I'll use Michael Phelps again. I don't think he will mind. But, but you know, if you, if you watched at all the Olympics, he, he sort of walks into the pool room and everybody cheers, right? But then you see him, you know, stand on that platform and he enters into the rules of the race. He, he keeps the rules of the race, enters into the contest, and then he comes out victorious. And what happens? Everybody cheers even more. Because even though he was already great, he entered into that contest and then inherited a more excellent title, right? 
a more excellent name. That's what Christ did. Christ, though he existed in the form of God, you know, he is God, he entered into our world, kept the rules of the law, earned true human righteousness, and then is exalted far above who we are. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. At the name of Jesus, not simply the name of the eternal God, in the name of that too, but the name of the eternal God who has, who has taken on humanity, Jesus Christ, at his name, he has authority to send us into the world to preach the gospel and proclaim his resurrection and his authority. So in that name, we should boldly go before the throne of God and find real help in time of need. We should boldly go into fellowship with one another. Because we know the risen Savior. In the name of Christ, we assemble together as one body and proclaim the gospel and care for one another in his name. Why would you look to any other mediator but in this one alone? Let's pray.